Well, we're, we're in a series of messages on marriage, so whether you are preparing for marriage, you've been married for a long time, you're thinking about marriage down the road, you were married at some point in the past, we all come with the same desire to find out what does the Bible teach about marriage? What is a biblical way of understanding marriage? How did God design marriage? And that's something that we as individuals need, that's something that our culture needs as well. And so after we uh, study God's word today, we'll be better equipped to go out and spread the truth about what God says about marriage in all of those spheres of influence that we have and to apply it in our own lives as well. Last week, we looked right at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, as God created male and female in his image. And that was really the first wedding that God officiated there between Adam and Eve. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, when marriage and all other aspects of life get messed up by sin. All right, so I don't know if that, if sin has had an influence in your marriage at all. Anybody besides us? Okay, this, uh, you found this to be true as well. So we're in Genesis chapter three. Uh, we're gonna find out some very sobering information in Genesis three, but also the seeds of hope as well, pointing forward to the hope of Jesus. So uh, hang on for, for a ride through God's word together. As we come, we do come with that heart of humility, that desire to listen, to hear, to be transformed. Set aside our American rationalization, skepticism. Let's set that aside and come together humbly submitting ourselves to God's word today, each one of us. And we're going to work through this chapter together with a heart that's willing to be changed in God's presence today. First thing we find out right at the beginning in Genesis 3 is that we have an enemy. So the good news of Genesis 1 and 2 as God is creating all the heavens, all the earth, the, the animals, the, the, the animals that live in the sea, the birds of the air, all the vegetation, the sun, moon, and stars, and at each point of creation, God says it is good, it is good, it is good. When he creates man in his image, he says it is very good. And only when, in chapter 2, as he looks at Adam in that position as an image bearer, but without a helper suitable for him, that's when he said, says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve. And together, they are able to show creation what the king looks like. To carry out God's kingdom mission in this good creation that he's made. But now things get very not good in chapter 3 as we find out that we have a real enemy. So let's read together here, beginning at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's some things we learn about this enemy right in the first verse. First of all, he's a literal real enemy. Okay, you know, you may be tripping over your uh, American mindset and going, really, talking snakes? We're going to believe in that now? Call me simple-minded, but given the alternatives, I would choose to believe God's word. Call me a conservative, but given the choice to depend and build a worldview based on human reason, my ability to figure things out, or following my own heart, I've just seen how that leads to many destructive places throughout human history and in my own life. And so I come simply and humbly saying, okay, God, if you say there was a talking snake in the garden, that's good enough for me. I believe it was so. May have been a one-time event, 
But this snake comes to Eve, personified evil, Satan whispering lies to Eve and getting her to question God's truth that God had spoken from his own mouth. Who is this enemy? Well, honestly, there is not a lot of detail in Scripture to really give us precise information about Satan. Uh, We have a conversation in the book of Job that God has with Satan as Satan points to Job and he says, well, here's a, a righteous man who fears you. Well, what happens if I put him through the test? He's gonna turn his back on you, God. And you can read the story of Job. We get some information about who Satan is in that dialogue that exists between God and Satan over this man, Job, and the persecution that he endures. So we know from that story that he's our adversary. He doesn't have our best interests in mind. He stands in opposition to God and his plans. He's one who opposes us. There are some uh, scholars who will connect some of the ancient Near Eastern pagan kings that are mentioned in a couple of the books of the prophets with Satan. So they'll look in Isaiah Uh, chapter 14 and say, well, those words that are directed toward the king of Babylon really sound like this enemy of ours, Satan. Or in Ezekiel chapter 28, words that are spoken against the king of Tyre, where in both cases these kings have set themselves up in opposition to God. In fact, they're considering themselves to be God's lowercase g. And God brings judgment and he casts them down and he demonstrates his power over them. We see more about our adversary, the devil, Satan, in Jesus' own words there in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, as Jesus is sending out the 72. And they come back and they're, they're shocked and amazed and they're reporting to Jesus the good things that have happened. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So there's little glimmers of of information that we have about Satan that he's under God's authority. He is not on par. There are not two deities in the universe, one good God and one evil God that are on par with one another. That's not the case. In fact, here in Genesis 3, we've seen that he's even created. He's in the category of the created beings. So there, is, there are two categories of existence, right? There is the creator, and then there is the created. Satan is in the category of the created. Here in verse 1, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That should give us some insight into this enemy that we have, this real adversary who's opposed to us. He's not the opposite and equal counterpart part of the good God. We find out more about Satan in the temptation dialogue that Satan has with Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels. He comes to Jesus and he tempts him, not unlike we're going to see him tempting Eve and introducing confusion, questioning what God has said, even quoting from Scripture in Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 4. So looking at just a biblical understanding of our adversary, Satan, we know that he's created, we know that he's crafty, we know that he's opposed to God, that he's aligned with all the kingdoms of this earth as a category that stands in opposition to God's kingdom. 
He's the father of lies. He's able to tempt humans like you and I to join him in opposing God. We saw that just a few weeks ago as we were working up to Easter and we were in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Two of Jesus' own followers, both Judas and Peter, were tempted and used by Satan to stand in opposition to God and his kingdom purposes. And what techniques does this real enemy use? Well, his number one tool is to get people to question God's word. We see that that's what he leads with with Eve right here. Did God really say? We're three chapters into the Bible and already the adversary is coming and that's what he leads with. He wants to get her to sin and the easiest path to that. If hearing is what leads, if hearing God's word is what leads to faith, Satan is going to challenge that. He's going to bring a new option of, of leading to unfaith. Basing your knowledge of good and evil on something other than what God himself has spoken. So he leads with that question, did God really say? And here as the story unfolds, we'll see a really a contrast between that which is heard producing genuine faith and that which is seen leading to fascination, idolatry, sin. In Jesus' own temptation story there in in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And Satan comes and he points to some rocks. And he gets Jesus looking at those rocks. And he says, Jesus, you look pretty hungry. Why don't you command those rocks to turn into bread? Can't you just smell that fresh baked bread 40 days? You've been hungering. You have it within your power. Just speak it and those rocks will turn into bread. And Jesus counteracts that temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan is really tempting Jesus with the same temptation strategy he's using here in the garden with Eve. He's saying cut God out of the equation. You don't need a loving heavenly father who knows good from evil to tell you the difference between good and evil. You can have direct knowledge of good and evil for yourself. Cut him out and go for knowledge of good and evil. You know what's best for you. He does not. And he he uses twisting of God's word and also this lust of what is seen with your eyes. Just like he did with Jesus, with those rocks to turn into bread, and now he's about to do with the fruit on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God really say? So we get to verse 2, the, the woman's response, Eve's response to this temptation, to this question. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So you see there was a a distortion of the truth as Satan comes and he says, did God really say, 
But what he quotes is not actually the word of God, right? God had said, do not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden because in the day that you do, you will surely die. That's what God actually said. You can go back and read it for yourself in Genesis chapter 2. Satan doesn't quote that correctly. In fact, he comes with a slight distortion that's pretty close to what God's word actually was. And he says, did God actually say you can't eat of any of these trees in the garden? And he sets that trap. And Eve latches onto it. No, no, no. We can eat of the trees of the garden here, the fruit of these trees. But the one in the middle of the garden, we can not only not eat the fruit, but we can't even touch that tree. Where did that come from? That's not in Genesis chapter 2. If you go back a chapter and you read that, did God say you can't touch the tree in the middle of the garden? And if you do, you'll surely die? No, it's not in there. So we don't know for sure if the, the information was not conveyed correctly as Adam is the one there in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's after that that the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone and Eve is created. Chapter 2, we see that Adam is the one with the direct, explicit word of God related to the tree in the midst of the garden. It could be that Adam has not conveyed that information correctly. So his own sermon to his wife was distorted a bit as he conveys a message that's a little more stringent than what God himself had said. Eve, God told me before you were created, we can't eat any fruit from that one tree in the middle of the garden. We can enjoy all the rest of the garden. We can walk with God in the cool of the day. We can enjoy this good creation that he's made. But there's one tree that we can't eat the fruit of. In fact, Eve, God said we can't even touch that tree or else we're going to die. That could be the scenario. Or it could be that Eve had also heard this message from God and she has imposed this more stringent requirement upon herself. We don't really have the details and the information there, but we do see a gap between what God said and what Eve heard. And now she's having this conversation with the father of lies and he goes, oh man, I can work with this. He brings a distortion. It's close to the truth, but it's twisted just enough to introduce confusion and doubt. There was a a charge and a responsibility that Adam had in Genesis 1 and 2. And it was this pure, God-created way of having authority that's different from anything we've seen because we live after Genesis 3. In fact, we bristle when, you hear the word, when we hear the word authority, right? When you hear the word submission, you even bristle more, right? We're Americans. Now, there's sin that has tainted our understanding of authority. Really, what was intended by God's design there in Genesis 1 and 2 is a type of authority that protects and serves and guards and points the way to God's truth and his good plan and demonstrates really God's authority to his creation, joining really in God's kingdom mission. And we're seeing already that breaking apart as the information that God spoke 
to Adam was not conveyed correctly to Eve or to her understanding. And she has this idea that the tree cannot even be touched. And this is what she repeats to the serpent. And now the father of lies speaks boldly. In verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Those of us who are parents think that this is exactly the goal of what we would like to have for our children, right? How many of you as parents would say, yeah, I want my kids to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And yet this is the desire and the common sense that Satan is exploiting. It's a, it's a base core desire that we have. We want direct knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. In fact, we want to give it to our children. It's so good. And yet that wasn't God's design and plan, was it? In fact, he said, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It will lead to death. What's the alternative? Having no clue the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? Pretty much. Living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And actually, when you think about it, we do this with our kids as well. We somehow have enough wisdom from God to know that we have a charge as parents to preserve our kids' innocence. We don't sit down at age five and say, you know, let's watch Schindler's List together. It's an historic film. I mean, this is real stuff that actually happened. You know, I'll help you see the difference between good and evil as we watch this. We know that they're going to have nightmares. They can't handle that. It's not a good thing for their minds to take in, right? And so we have this desire to preserve the innocence of our children. We would like them to live trusting mom and dad to know good from evil and to protect them from evil and show them and teach them what is good. And yet we think that at some point in life there's a switch that flips and now we should have direct knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. When actually the way God designed things was that we would commune with him and trust him to know what is good and bad and right and wrong, to hear his voice. And yet Satan says, in opposition to what God's word said, you will not die. Your eyes will be opened. This is a good thing. Trust me. You want direct knowledge of good and evil for yourself. I think we're all aware of this real enemy that we have and the lies that he brings specific to our lives and our context. You've got a weak spot in your life. You have a temptation that you're prone to. And our adversary is aware of that. He comes with his fiery darts. He knows just where to hit you. You know, for me, he's never going to tempt me with shoplifting. It's just not a sin issue that I struggle with. For you, it may be. He knows where your weakness is, and he'll work to exploit that using something that's close to the truth, but it's a little off. And he'll get you to begin to question God's word. It even gets you to a place where you say, you know, this is boring. Sermons that just work through the Bible, they're not, they're not engaging enough. They're, I need some eye candy. 
I need something that fascinates me. Something I can really enjoy. And that's exactly the strategy that he used here with Eve. Dangled something out there for her to look at and got her to question what God himself had said. How will you resist Satan's lies this week? In Romans chapter 16, there's the antidote to this poison that we have, the the lies of the enemy. Romans 16 verse 19 says, Be wise as to what is good and innocent of evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's Romans 16, 19, and 20. That'd be a good passage for you to memorize, teach to your children. Be wise as to what is good. Be innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. There is a real battle going on. It includes spiritual beings that occupy a dimension that we can't perceive with our five senses. We have information in God's word about this spiritual reality that involves demons. And you can either blow that off as an enlightened intellectual American and say, well, that's a mythological worldview where they actually believe that snakes talk. Or you can submit your sinful, fallen human reason to the God who created all things good and say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm scared because your word says that there is a real spiritual battle. And I bring that realization and that fear to you, and I trust in the God who will soon crush Satan. The solution to those lies that the enemy brings to you is not to really immerse yourself in those lies so you can understand every facet. Sniff out every heresy. Analyze the words of Satan as he comes to you with lies that distort God's word and analyze all those aspects of what he said. That's not the answer. Romans 16 says, be wise as to what is good and be innocent of evil. So if you want to counteract the lies of the enemy, get into God's word. Spend time in prayer. Allow him to transform your heart so that when the lies come in, you can go, no, 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 that's not what God said. Let me tell you what he said. That's how you stand in opposition to his plans. Unfortunately, that's not the path that Eve took. So she hears these lies. She hears a direct confrontation to what God has said. And now we begin to see into her heart, really seeds that were there before the serpent even began to speak. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What was the original sin? When you analyze that verse, what was it? Was it pride? Was that the first sin? Pride that Eve and Adam as well thought they knew better than what God had said? Even though God had given explicit commands, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden because in the day that you do, you will surely die. Is it pride that says, I actually know better than God? 
Is it lust? Was lust the original sin that she saw this fruit and she wanted it? She saw that it looked good. It looked tasty. And it was going to give her something desirable, the knowledge of good and evil. Her eyes would be opened. Was lust the original sin? Maybe you would call this original sin unfaith. The exact opposite of faith. Faith would be saying, okay God, I am all in believing in you. You are the good creator. I trust that you have my best interests in mind. I trust that you are able to handle the knowledge of good and evil yourself and I'm going to live by every word that comes from your mouth rather than following my heart or my mind. That's faith and what we're seeing here is really unfaith. Saying, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if he has a good plan. I don't know if he's the good creator. What if he doesn't have my best interests at heart? What if there's something more out there that I could have than what God is willing to give me? And really we see the roots of some desire that was there in Eve's heart that really Satan just exploited. There is a real enemy There's also the enemy of our own hearts and the lies that we speak to ourselves. And these two together are a recipe for destruction and sin. We see Eve rationalizing. It's a very powerful motivator. You've probably seen this in your own life. I put a quote there, a common quote, rationalization is the enemy of integrity. Integrity is when your insides look like your outsides. Okay? It might not be pretty, but what you see is what you get. This is who I really am, right? Yet most of us have a gap between what's really going on inside and what people see on the outside. And rationalization is one of those things that keeps that barrier intact. We can justify, excuse, rationalize, explain away, and that's what we see Eve doing right here. She's reasoning in her own mind, using that intellect that God had created, but now she's not using it in the way that the Creator had intended. She's reasoning, well, you know, it looks good. I want it. I need to be true to myself. If it feels good, how can it be wrong? We've heard these lies in our world, maybe in our own lives. What does any of this have to do with a series of messages on marriage? I'll tell you what. We wouldn't need a sermon series on marriage if sin were not the issue. We would know how to do this perfectly. We would have perfect marriages. We'd have relational harmony. We'd be walking in right relationship with God and with one another. The fact is we need to submit ourselves to God's word because we are fallen sinful human beings. And the, the message that the culture has is, you know, you need to find someone that you're compatible with. Just be, you know, take a test, find out who you are, and then have the internet find someone who's exactly matched for who you are, who doesn't require any change, and who will accept you just as you are. And then you'll have a blissful, perfect marriage. Um... I'm reading Genesis 3. I'm not sure if that plan's going to work because we're dealing with two sinful human beings 
They're completely incompatible because they're not functioning according to God's design. And that's a more realistic view of marriage. If you understand what sin is, that's the first step toward getting healing so you can actually have a marriage that is compatible of two broken people who submit their hearts to God and allow Jesus to be the one that transforms each of them. So Eve has now desired this fruit, believed the lies of the enemy, followed her own heart, taken a bite of the fruit. Adam is standing there passively next to her. Likely hearing the conversation, seeing the thought process, letting his wife take the first move. I'm a hunter. I've seen this in the animal kingdom. Uh, the most dramatic time was a, a year in Wisconsin. They had a, there were so many, uh, over, overpopulation of the deer herd that you had to harvest a doe in October in order to earn a buck tag that you could use in November. So we're all out there hunting doe. Well, what do you think you see when you, all you have is a doe tag? The biggest buck I've ever seen. Right in front of me, broadside, right? I think they have copies of the hunting regulations. But this buck, as he came to the edge of the field where the, guy, the other guys were doing a drive through the woods and I was the stander, he comes to the edge of the woods and he hits the brakes and he lets the doe go running out across this open clearing first. And then he goes once he makes sure the path is clear for himself. This is really the animal nature that we're seeing here. Subtly, but really here in verse 6, as Adam is passively rejecting his role that God had created him for to lead in a way that says, I will lay down my life first. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see what happens. She took a bite. Didn't seem to hurt her. Now I'll try it as well. And so together, these humans that God had created in his image with the purpose of demonstrating to creation what his kingdom looks like have together turned their backs on him and gone after living by their own hearts, living by their own lusts, what they see and are fascinated by, setting themselves up to be God's lowercase g, cutting God out of the equation, questioning what God had said, believing the liar rather than the author of all life. What happens? Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Look back at 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed on that day of creation. And now they are aware of their nakedness and they're ashamed because the next sentence says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And already as soon as sin is introduced, we see this hiding. We see a lack of transparency. We see barriers to intimacy and their shame. And this is the reality of marriage in the year 2018. Barriers to intimacy, shame, hiding from one another because of sin. Sin destroys relationships with the people that you love. 
transparency becomes risky. I mean, if she knows all the details about who I am in my heart, will she still love me and accept me? So if you are a sinner and you are married to another sinner, you will have marriage problems. This is the bad news. There's good news coming. So we see in verse 7 that sin is now destroying the relationship between these, the only two humans that exist. There's now shame and hiding and a barrier to intimacy that's introduced because of this decision to sin. But not only that, verse 8 shows us that sin creates a barrier between the one who created us to enjoy his love. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Look at that phrase. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That's what happens when sin is introduced. And really just the picture that's in that tight little verse. God himself, the sound of God himself walking through the garden in the cool of the day. This was his plan. It was a risky plan, in my opinion, but it was a plan to create as an overflow of his love. And you see that picture of his desire to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with these people that he's made in his image where there's perfect transparency. There are no barriers to intimacy. There's no hiding. There's no shame. There's you seeing me for who I am and me seeing you for who you are. And God is present and there's nothing inhibiting that love that he has intended to show us and to invite us to participate in. And immediately after sin enters the equation, the man and his wife are hiding themselves from the presence of God. There were some lies that Eve told herself leading up to to this decision to take a bite of the fruit. What lies are you telling yourself? There is a real enemy and he will come and he will tempt you but the temptation he will most usually use is to exploit the desires that you already have, the lies that you've already been believing. And he'll come with a a subtle lie that's close enough to the truth that you'll believe it, just like he did with Eve. And as you choose to listen to your own heart, your own mind, the lies of the enemy, to question God's word, as you choose to sin, you will see that sin is destroying the relationships with those that you love and with the God who created you to be with him. Thanks be to God that he makes a way for this cycle of sin to be broken. And we're going to see the, the, the glimmers of that in the, in the rest of this passage here. So first we see now God right away pursuing these sinful humans. God is, is the author of all life. He stands outside of time and space. Before time began, he existed. There's nothing hidden from him. 
He is omniscient, all-knowing. So he knows what's happened already. And yet he goes in pursuit of these people made in his image who have betrayed him and chosen to go after pride, lust, unfaith, whatever that original sin was, combination of all that. He chooses to go to them. And in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I hope you have a picture of God doing that in your life. I hope you have an awareness wherever you are at this stage in life to know that for whatever reason you're sitting here today, it's because there is a God who loves you and is pursuing you and has pursued you and he's seeking you out and saying, where are you? And it's a desire to allow you to be delivered from this pattern of sin that destroys relationships with others, that wrecks marriages, that inhibits your relationship with the God who created you and loves you. He's pursuing you. And he's coming after you and saying, I know your name. You're my son. You're my daughter. Where are you? And Adam does respond here in verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, you weren't supposed to know about this. You have knowledge of evil. Where did you get that? Who told you that? I didn't tell you this, Adam. I would have preserved your innocence. I had a good plan. How do you know that you're naked? And now this fear and this barrier to intimacy and this hiding and this shame leads to more sins, the sin of finger pointing, the sin of blame shifting. In verse 12, the man said, the woman, it's the first person he blames, whom you gave to be with me. That's the second person he blames. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So God, it's not really my fault that I know that I'm naked. And technically, yes, I may have eaten the fruit. It's her fault and by the way, you're the one that made her. You said she was a helper suitable for me. She gave me the fruit of the tree that you told me not to eat. So God, it's your fault and her fault, not my fault. Wives, any of you, your husbands have pulled this stunt? Don't raise your hand, please. We'll have more, more marriage problems. So then the Lord God gives Eve a chance to speak. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay? She didn't blame Adam or God, but she blamed the only other person around, the serpent. Okay? Really, this is a picture of what sin does as it destroys relationships, barriers to intimacy, hiding, shame, 
making it risky for another person to really know me and see me for who I am. Rationalizing. Going after what my eyes desire rather than what God's Word has said. Blaming other people for the choices that I make and the sin that I am pulled into. And really, it's adding more barriers to intimacy. Anytime someone accuses you of something they did, it doesn't endear you to them a whole lot, right? And now God brings judgment and discipline to all the parties involved. So we hear now the consequences of sin. Because sin's consequences are far-reaching. They affect our relationships with those we love. They affect our relationship with the God who created us. And they affect all facets of our lives and our world. So he speaks first to the serpent. In verse 14. Again, really, this is, these verses are underscoring God's authority over Satan. Because God is able to pronounce judgment on Satan himself. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Once again, we're seeing God's plan of redemption even in the judgment that he's bringing to the serpent. There's going to be a descendant of this woman who is going to crush the head of the foe, the deceiver, the father of lies. And yet there will be bloodshed because the enemy will strike the heel of this future human offspring. And at this story in Genesis, if this is all you've read of the Bible, you really have no clue what this is alluding to. But if you were here on Easter Sunday a couple weeks ago, you'll know exactly what this is in reference to. You'll know the descendant of that woman who will crush the enemy and defeat sin and Satan definitively. You will know about the blood that will be spilled, but it's just a momentary period of three days until he rises from the dead. And that blood that is shed, which is sufficient to undo what sin had broken, accomplishes its good purpose and allows creation to be restored, allows sin to be cleansed and forgiven, allows relationships to be reestablished and intimacy does away with hiding and shame and blame shifting and restores the relationship with our creator who makes all things good. Then he turns to the woman. Judgment for her choice to choose sin over what God had spoken. And he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, the last part of that verse is what I want to focus on. You'll see a very similar phrase used in the next chapter, Genesis 4, 
verse seven. So again, the verse that we read here in chapter three, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The next chapter, Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, is born and there's a warning to Cain in chapter four, verse seven. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sounds very similar to this verse we've read in chapter three. There's this desire and this ruling over. Again, this is another example of where this whole category of authority, submission, leadership is distorted because of sin. And really part of the judgment on Eve is that there will be this temptation just just like sin is crouching at Cain's door and its desire is, sin's desire is for Cain to rule over Cain. That's the kind of sin issue judgment that Eve will have. It'll be this desire to displace Adam to cut Adam out of the equation, to question even the masculine role, to belittle and scorn and undermine. This is the scenario we're living in in the 21st century where men are very confused as to what their role is. If they do take any leadership, they're male chauvinists, And yet if they're extremely passive and hang back, then they're worthless. We live in a very gender-confused world today. It's because of the fall. We're seeing the seeds of it right here. And it's really a working out of what God has spoken here in Genesis 3. But thanks be to God, Jesus himself comes and he shows us men a picture of what godly male leadership looks like. And he makes it possible for us to begin to walk in that path. And as Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he does an an object lesson with his disciples the night of the Last Supper. He gets down on his hands and knees and starts to wash the stinky feet of these young men that have been journeying with him on dusty roads. And he says, "If, if I have washed your feet you should do the same. This is what leadership looks like. It's being the first one to say, I'll lay down my life. I'll put you first. There's not just a judgment for the snake and for Eve. There's also a direct conversation that God has with Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, there's a message to the women. You're going to have problems with leadership and authority and submission. This will be a judgment that you will have. And to the men, the ground, creation itself is cursed because of your decision 
to turn from me. Now God, when he says there's judgment coming because you listen to the voice of your wife, gentlemen, that's not, don't take that the wrong way. Read it within context. Okay, it's really you've listened to her instead of me. It's not a, an excuse to say you don't have to listen to your wife, guys. Listen to her voice. And women, speak the truth of God's word to your husbands and undo some of the effects of the curse in your marriage. But the ground itself, now life will be defined by toil and hard work and the daily grind and drudgery. And really, this is a picture of what the history of Israel is going to encounter and really the history of all God's people. There's this pattern that happens over and over again, a pattern of sin and a time in the wilderness and God bringing provision as his people repent and turn from sin and turn back to God and leave that place of unfaith and lust and rationalization and turn to a place of living by every word that comes from the mouth of God and trusting in him to be the one who provides and guides and directs. And praying that simple prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That simple prayer that says, God, I'm, I'm humbling myself before you. I need you today. And I choose you over what my brain thinks or my heart feels. And all the hard work between now and then is the consequences of the decision to sin. That's really how wisdom is acquired, right? Wisdom comes when you make a mistake and you face the consequences. This is, a, this is not God being vengeful, wrathful, angry. This is God being a loving father. He says, I want what's best for you. And I had a good plan at the point of creation. I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to make the way for you to get there. It's a good plan. And you will face discipline as a result of your sin that will drive you back to me. We're going to see more, one more uh, picture of this plan of redemption that God has here in the last verses. But I'd encourage you this week to, to take a, a period of time where you turn off the cell phone, get away from the distractions, and really get an accurate self-assessment. I think before God's grace is good news in our lives, we need to really look at our sin for what it is. Its effect on our lives, on the lives of those that we love, on our world. And it's not bad to have times of remorse and grief and lament over our own sins. In fact, it's very important because that heart posture is what leads to confession and repentance. And that's a humble heart that God can mold for his good purposes. So don't beat yourself up with guilt. Don't try to recreate the cross and put yourself on it. But take some time to reflect prayerfully and really take a hard look at your sin. God even reminds Adam of his place in the universe. Here at the end of these verses, you are dust 
and to dust you shall return. Remember, Adam, you are in the category of created, not creator. And we need that reminder when we've set ourselves up as God, lowercase g, and said, I know what's best for my life. I'll just go out there and find a spouse. I'll get this person to change to be the way I want them to be. And we bring this arrogance into our relationships and into our marriages. God says, remember who you are. You're dust. I'm the creator. You're going to return to dust someday. So let's have that accurate assessment of who we are so that we can come with humility to the God who breaks the power of sin, who brings new life. And here's the picture of redemption here in these last verses, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There are some animals who died this day. It hadn't happened prior to this. And there are garments that God provides himself. There's blood that is shed. An animal's life is sacrificed. And God himself covers, covers and clothes these people that he's created in his image. He makes a way for their shame and their guilt and their nakedness to be covered. And God's the one that provides those garments. God's the one who covers your sin, provides a way for you to be cleansed and to be restored, removes the shame and the punishment and the guilt of your sin. And it's through the blood of his son, the sacrificial son who went to the cross and died in your place. His name is Jesus. And his shed blood is what God provides to make a way for you to not face that punishment yourself, for sin's power to be broken. And here now we, we, we meet the second tree. So there was a tree in the midst of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the sign on that tree. Don't eat it, it says. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's no fine print that says don't even touch it contrary to what Eve said. But there's another tree. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim, type of an angel. Again, this is a dimension of reality that we don't know a lot about. And so we can either dismiss it as fable and mythology or we come humbly to God and say, God, I don't understand a lot about what this is. Our adversary, Satan, who comes to tempt, cherubim that you send, but God, I trust in you and in your word. And I don't live by what I see. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if God says it, we believe it, right? 
So there's this tree of life. And God doesn't want Adam and Eve to grab a hold of that fruit and be eternally and permanently in this place of separation and alienation from God. That's a fruit and a gift that God will bestow in his time when creation has been redeemed. And if you want to read more about that tree, turn to the very last chapter in your Bible. Revelation 22, the very back page. We're at the very front. Here's what it says about the tree of life in Revelation 22. The leaves of the tree were for the, for the healing of the nations. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The gospel in three trees. The beginning of the story, you have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It introduced sin. It created alienation from God and from others that we love. It's the reason we need a series of messages on marriage. Because we're sinful, fallen human beings trying to live in relationship with one another. At the end of the story, as God's work of redemption is completed, there's this tree of life that gives healing to all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation, and restores God's good plan for humans and for creation itself. But right in the middle, there's a third tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why Jesus died. On a tree, on a cross made from a tree, that tree right in the middle of history that is decisively, has decisively defeated sin and death, crushed the head of Satan, made it possible for us to live in restored communion with God and with one another, taken away our shame, and our guilt, made it possible for us to live the abundant life today in our marriages. God's the one who provides that. And so as you take that time this week for self-reflection, take a good hard look at your sin, but then in prayer, confess and repent and then give thanks and rejoice because your sins are forgiven because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. You're dead to sin. You're alive to righteousness if you are a Christian because of Jesus' blood. And if you are a married couple here today, I'm going to give you a marriage challenge for this week. The challenge is to put James 5.16 into practice this week. And it's going to require that you take that risk of vulnerability and transparency and to be honest with one another as a couple, James 5.16 says this, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Husbands, I challenge you this week to talk to your wife and say, honey, I need to, I need to confess some things that, the ways I've been treating you, ways that I've been talking to you, desires that I've yielded to, things that I've looked at 
fruit that I've taken and eaten. Will you pray for me? Wives, likewise, talk to your husband and say, honey, I need to, I need to confess some things. I need to verbalize. It's, it's not a secret to either one of us, but I'm going to stop hiding and be real. Here's what's going on. Will you pray for me? And there may be some sparks and some fireworks, but I believe it will be the beginning of God bringing healing. I believe God's word to be true. And if James 5.16 says, take that risk, get naked in terms of being honest with who you are on the inside and outside. Stop hiding, stop pretending, stop rationalizing and excusing, stop finger pointing and blaming, and start confessing and praying and see the healing in the life that God can bring and will bring. Can I pray for you this week? Let's have, um, if you are, and I'm not, I'm not picking anybody, but I, I just, I'm aware of the spiritual battle that's going on. So I would like if you are a married couple and you're here together today, could you just grab hands and then let's all stand together. I'd like to pray especially for those that are married or I know we've got an engaged couple here as well. You guys get in on that as well. And let's pray for that plan that God has for you. Let's all join together in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for the times that we have tried to cut you out of the equation, that we've tried to do what we think is best. Today we confess that sin of choosing to live by our own hearts or our own minds instead of listening to you. So God, we, we do come with that place of, from that place of repentance and confession today as a body. We thank you, God, that those past sins and flaws do not define who we are. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, that you have decisively defeated sin in the grave, that our real adversary, Satan, has been defeated. We thank you that we walk in newness of life. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you that you have covered our shame and our nakedness that you have restored our relationship with you and with one another. God, I do pray for the couples here in the room today. We acknowledge that each of these relationships is comprised of two sinful humans in desperate need of your grace and your redemption. We pray that you would continue that work of sanctification. Lord, that there'd be husbands in this room that follow after you in your example, as you loved the church by laying your life down. God, give them the strength this week to not take the passive role, but to take that active role of leading in a way that says, I will die to self first. I pray for the the ladies in the room who struggle with the messages of this culture, the desires of their own hearts. Lord, I pray today that you'd help them to willingly submit to you, willingly submit to the godly man that you've brought to their lives if that's the case. And then leave the results up to you. Give them the strength and the grace to obey you and to follow after you, Lord God. God, I pray for those today who are struggling in a marriage or are going through a divorce or this topic brings a lot of pain. Lord, we just pray today that you would be the comforter, you'd be the lover, 
you would bring restoration and hope and joy. Let us hear your words of truth over the lies of the enemy. For the young people here, Lord, who are looking to marriage someday, I pray that today they would submit their hearts to you. They would allow your lordship to define their decisions each day. They would live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, not by the popular ideas in our culture, not by whatever gets the most likes on their social media page, but God, that they would submit themselves to your word and allow you to speak the truth that they need to hear. Prepare them, Lord, to be the husbands and wives that you've called them to be. Lord, today we do confess our sins to you and we pray for one another in this room. We ask that you would strengthen us as a body, that we would be a picture to this community of what godly relationships look like in the ways that we interact as husbands and wives and as a church family. We give you thanks and praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Give somebody a hug. Tell them you love them. Encourage them after I got done beating you guys up today. We'll see you next week.